We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by Tony Woodleaf. He's the author of the new book, I, Citizen. He's also the executive vice president at the State Policy Network. Tony, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Emily. So tell us about iCitizen. The subtitle here is A Blueprint for Reclaiming American Self-Governance. That's probably an ambition that sounds very, uh, that's falling on, that that people would would really love to uh, feel as though they can accomplish or feel as though the country can accomplish. Um, And it seems like something that a lot of people want to pursue at this moment in time. So tell us about the book, first of all, and then we can dive into uh, some of the other questions I have about it. Sure, sure. Well, um, and thanks for asking. I, uh, I began it because, you know, I'm a political scientist by training. Um, uh, I'm not practicing, just uh, trained that way, I guess. Uh, and I was really, you know, bothered like a lot of people are, I believe, by this constant message that we get from pundits, from um, other kind of bastions of news media that the country's on the verge of civil war. The Team Red and Team Blue despise each other to the point that they're ready to take up arms or do violence and they, they have no respect for one another and so on. And what struck me was that um, it didn't really describe anybody I know. And, and I've got friends all across the political spectrum um, with one exception. It really seemed to describe pretty adequately folks I know who've made a lifetime in DC, people who really like to live on Twitter. It seemed to describe them, but they're not really representative of most people in America. So I, I dug into a lot of the polling data, which is available to anyone, and found, sure enough, most Americans are not very ideological. They're not that invested in politics. They tend to be centrist to center right. Uh, less than 10% of Americans describe themselves as extremely liberal or extremely conservative. And then on a whole variety of issues, as long as the pollster gives them a scale, like how do you, you know, how tough should we be on crime or, or how liberal should we be with immigration or how much welfare spending should we have? Whenever pollsters give people a scale, most Americans cluster right in the middle. And, and so um, that was really at odds with the message we get from pundits. And so from there, I just began to dig into, well, why, why might that be? And where I landed was that for most people, most Americans, there's a shared ethos, um, which we can get into. Uh, but they want to get along with their neighbors. They want Washington to work, uh, but also to keep behind its borders. And that's just so different from what we're all hearing. And to me, it was very encouraging. Yeah, this is there's there's so much to work with there. It's it's really, really interesting. Did you start the book before or after or during the pandemic? Uh, I started. Oh gosh, it seems like it's always been pandemic. So I can't even imagine before <laughs> the pandemic. It's you know like grainy black and white. I started during um, had nothing else going on, you know. Um, <laughs> but you know we had a summer of riots and killing, and it seems just that at every turn, all you heard was that America hates itself and we hate one another, and um, that was part of the impetus for it. Was I felt like I, I hope this isn't true. Uh, but I went in with open eyes, and and I, I think it's the case that it isn't true, which is good. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. And what I like about just the way your subtitle phrases it, I mean, self-governance, it's not the way that Washington really talks about the daily lives of people. It's not the way that actually lawmakers and think tankers in D.C. Um, conceive of what people are doing uh, You know, when they, they wake up and they go to sleep and, and even while they're sleeping as a form of self-governance. Um, and On the other hand, it does seem that the pandemic has conditioned some segment of the public to want less self-governance, to want more federal governance. In fact, do you did you see that play out at all or do you think I'm missing something there? Uh, Well, I think it, uh, you know, depends on what survey you're looking at when. Um, and, And that's one problem with surveys is they tend to pick up a lot of kind of passions of the moment. And so certainly in the midst of the the scare um, which has persisted. The attempt to scare, to terrify the country has persisted, but I think it has less effect now because, you know, we're on whatever letter of the Greek alphabet and, uh, <laughs> and, and things aren't as bad as we've been told. But obviously when people were really scared, uh, they looked to their government, they looked to the feds to do something, you know, these national borders keep the illness out and so on. Uh, but what we see over time, we've seen this um, for a number of decades, is that the American trust in the federal government and federal institutions has declined and uh, trust in state and local institutions has increased somewhat. And those are related, the, those two things happening. But what's most interesting to me is at the same time, you know, accompanying this decline in trust in the federal government has been a, uh, an increase in the number of Americans who say that they're independents that they've disassociated from both uh, major parties. There's a concerted effort by everyone from Nate Silver to, you know, <laughs> people from both parties to misconstrue what that means and to uh, tell us that really independents are just people trying to look cool, but they're just as partisan as ever. But the data is exceedingly clear that that's not the case. And I think they're related. As Washington has become dysfunctional, the parties have become um, just horrible. Uh, people don't want any part of it but they want things to work. And that's, you know, why they're frustrated. Yeah. And tell us when uh, you say that most of the country is down the center or center right. It's really interesting because, again, we get into this thing where when we say center right, it means a lot of different things. And there's something happening now where on cultural issues, the left in and of itself is is completely mixed up. Um, and, and what makes somebody center left or what makes someone center like Nancy Pelosi? She's she's an establishment figure, but she's, I would say, very far to the left on the cultural issues. Um, so define for us what center and, and center right looks like in real life. Yeah, well, of course, it looks exactly like me, you know, that's, that's <laughs> what we all want to think, you know. Uh, <laughs> And I talk about that a little bit in the book about um, trying to tear apart, for example, the difference between ideology and partisanship uh, because they've been toxically entwined for about a fifth of the population, which makes them very susceptible to whatever their leaders, their tribal leaders tell them they need to believe this week and very mm-hmm. malleable. Um, but in, when I say center right, what I'm talking about is a lot of survey evidence since the 70s and further back. It's fairly consistent that Americans believe, for example, in having a safety net. They're not libertarian. They believe that that you ought to help uh, those in need. But they believe um, if those folks aren't willing to work, you should cut them off and let them fend for themselves. You know, they believe in helping out a mom who has, you know, a child without a a father around. But what she has five or six, 
They don't have much charity left. They believe in letting immigrants into the country, but they commit a crime or they don't want to work, throw their asses right back out. So <laughs> there's a combination of, of charitableness that we often associate with the left, but with also with hard consequences that we associate with the right. Uh, and I, to me, those, that's just very traditional, unsurprising set of values. And that's why I say center right, because it's not libertarian, it's not Republican, um, but it's absolutely not what we associate with the left anymore either, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I wanted to actually ask further on that, like where on those cultural on the on the spectrum of sort of like cultural issues is the the average American or is it maybe even too splintered to define? Well, I think so. One of the challenges, Emily, is that um, so much of the survey data that we get now is unreliable. Um, it's not even I mean, it's pretending to be polling, but it's really uh, an, it's messaging. Right. The vast majority of what comes through on Twitter or whatever, it's messaging done by interested parties. So we have to throw all that out. Uh, but there are some reliable entities, you know, University of Michigan, Chicago, Pew. Those are very reputable, really well done uh, survey operations. And so when you look at data that comes from those kinds of organizations, um, what we see pretty clearly is that, for example, um, most Americans don't know what critical race theory is. Mm -hmm. Uh, when you explain it to them, they don't like it. Uh, they don't believe in race quotas, and that includes, by the way, a majority of African Americans. Um, it, they don't believe in any kind of gender quotas. They don't like quotas, period. Uh, and that's across the board, every kind of racial classification. So there's a, in, insofar as we associate that with a conservative impulse, right. um, you know, a belief that you ought to get ahead by your own merit and work, then it's pretty widespread. Um, but when you start to, associate those beliefs with particular parties, then people's tribal impulse might kick in and they might be less enthusiastic about a particular position. But thankfully, most people are not that invested in parties. So, so they're able to put that filter aside. Right. And that's why ideologues in D.C. have a very different conception of what is a top line political issue than the rest of the country. Um, and I want to ask you also to explain further, because this is an important thing that a lot of normal news readers shouldn't have to understand, but also don't understand because it's extremely complicated. The way people put the way people commission surveys and then use them for ideological and, and partisan purposes, I'm sure you encountered all of the time in your research for this book. And in general, um, it's almost fraudulent. Um, the way they ask questions about Medicare for all has basically diluted the entire activist left into thinking that's a broadly popular idea. Um, talk to us about that issue. Uh, it, well, it's endemic, um, and there are you know smarter people than me that could give you the rundown on like how to spot a good poll. Um, but but usually, what you'll see with this kind of whether it's a push poll or some kind of marketing effort is um, the sampling is is way off, and they'll betray themselves if they bother to reveal like the partisanship of the respondents, which mostly they won't. And I think in part because they know what what that shows. But in the really bad surveys, you'll see. Huge chunks of the respondents identify, self-identify as pretty hard left or right. And that's your first giveaway, because in reputable polls, less than 10% will do that. Um, another thing they'll do is they'll do the poll really fast. Um, <laughs> and, and they'll do like a combination of internet and phone with no compensation for the respondent. And, and non-response bias is becoming a massive problem for the polling industry, because in, in common terms, 
you have to ask somebody who sits down for 30 minutes to fill out an online survey or talk to somebody on the phone. I mean, answer the phone when some stranger calls and then give their opinions. That's not normal Americans. <laughs> it might have been, but it's not anymore. Um, but then on top of that, the way we do the questions. So you might recall, I believe it was an Axios poll right after the, the disaster in Afghanistan, that awful withdrawal. Uh, and Tom Nichols made a big deal out of this. And, and Nichols, you know, he's on the USA Today editorial board. Um, he, he wrote an essay earlier this year where he said, you know, the, the greatest enemy to America is we the people. Yes. Very soured on democracy. So he goes to this Axios poll and he, and he says, oh, this is what's wrong with America. You know, they're a bunch of idiots, more or less. I'm paraphrasing because, you know, they, they want us out of Afghanistan, but they don't like the way it was done. And somehow that that's an evidence of, of inconsistency in his mind. Mm -hmm. Well, you talk to regular people in regular America, there's nothing inconsistent about that at all. I mean, I'm surprised that um, we even have to talk about it. It's obvious what the poll uh, respondents were saying. They're saying, heck yeah, we want it out, but we didn't want to lose 13 servicemen in the process and embarrass ourselves. That raises such an interesting question about your uh, thesis and embedded in it is this uh, idea, this predicate that self-governance is a virtue and that it is a path towards peace uh, to the extent that it can be achieved and prosperity to the extent that it can be achieved. And it's coming at a time, and I, I know this is why you wrote the book, um, in this sort of climate where elites are less interested in that idea than ever before. I mean, the people on Wall Street, from, from Wall Street to Hollywood to here in Washington, D.C., they trust the people much less than they have ever trusted the people. They probably never really trust the people, but now it's it's at a, a, a low. What is your pitch to them as to why self-governance, uh, why we should put more power back in the hands of the, this is in their minds, the toothless rubes who gave us the celebrity apprentice president. <laughs> no, that's a great question. I love that. Uh, I hadn't thought much about my pitch to members of the political class. I'm mostly <laughs> scorn on them, but. Um, Say you're talking to Tom Nichols. <laughs> uh, Tom Nichols. Well, that conversation's not going to go well, but I welcome it. Um, but for, you know, let's say like my, my conservative friends and my progressive friends, um, what I tell my conservative friends is I, I know that you, you, you have healthy reasons to distrust untrammeled democracy, as the founders did. And, and that's why they set up a system of government where we delay democratic action so that we can calm down and listen to various interests and so on and so forth. And, you know, we learned that in civics class, or at least we used to. Um, but we've all been taught, um, you know, America is not a democracy, democracy is bad. And so what I tell them is, um, when you look at the survey evidence, if you're willing to trust more to the democratic process, uh, whether it's where we go to war or, you know, how we regulate pornography or what, whatever it may be, or crime or immigration, you're probably going to be more or less satisfied with the result because the survey evidence is clear that most Americans more or less agree with you. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're hard right, you know, completely anti-tax in every situation, you know, no immigrants in the country, libertarian, there should be no government, you're not going to be happy uh, because most Americans haven't even heard of thinking that way. They don't, they don't agree with that. But if you're more or less center-right, you're going to be happy. And then I tell my progressive friends, you know, there's a pretty strong impulse, a distrust for big business along with big government. And, um, you know, when you start to give more authority back to communities, even over simple things, 
like wh whether or not you can put a cell tower somewhere, you know, you're not allowed to decide that in your community, um, you know, or, or where you, whether you can stop pornography in your local library. Um, when you start to put more decisions back in communities, you begin to get more community spirit, which appeals to my localist and progressive friends. Um, that's kind of how I've, I've tried to sell them on breaking up big school boards. You know, I had that, that piece in the Wall Street Journal earlier this year arguing that the, the way to deal with critical race theory is to bust up these massive school districts because then you can restore to parents what, what they always had until the progressive area, which is um, control over their schools. And most parents would, would give you results that you'd like. Um, so that's my message to the well-meaning people in the political class is that you can trust Americans more than you've been led to believe by sneering pollsters and the Tom Nichols of the world. Yeah, that's great. Can you break down the school board um, example a little bit and talk about how it fits into you just sort of obviously broke it down a bit. But if, can you go deeper into how that particular example is one that illustrates the point of I citizen? Oh, that's all. I love these questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so part of what I talk about in I citizen is this there's been this legislative shirking where, you know, there's a branch of government supposed to be the preeminent branch. And instead, you have so many legislators that they throw off the decisions to the judges and unelected bureaucrats. And then they get to wave their hands and complain and swoop in and save a constituent here and there like they're heroes when they're the ones that empowered these bozos in the first place. So when you think about school boards and what's going on in schools and critical race theory, um, what I wrote about is that there's all these efforts by, you know, folks on the right to ban critical race theory. And I've worked enough with school bureaucracies to tell you right here and now, uh, that's whack-a-mole, right? The, the, these bureaucrats are so skilled at doing exactly what they want and just relabeling it until you give up and go home in frustration. You can't ban it, right? The only thing you can do is put vi vigilant sentries in every school. And the good news is they already exist. They're called parents. Uh, but the, the problem is, you've got this massive bureaucracy, right? So if you look at Loudoun County in Virginia, which is of course the epicenter of a lot of this garbage, they've got 85,000 students. They cover a geographic area that's half the size of Rhode Island. It's so, crazy. Yeah, there's no way an average parent is gonna be able to stand up to those bunch of people. And we saw what happened when one father tried to, right? Mm -hmm. His daughter had been sexually assaulted by a trans student in schools. The school tried to cover it up. He went to the school board meeting they try to prosecute him for a felony, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe the Federalist wrote about that. So um, when you begin to break these things up, these big districts, you give more control back to communities. And so that's what I talk about, you know, in the midway through my book is the big enemy we're facing right now is a massive unelected federal bureaucracy. Uh, we're, we're at the point where, you know, Charlie Cruz at, um, or Wayne Cruz at, at CEI, he did the math and he said recently, in recent years, for every law passed by Congress, federal agencies pass 27 regulations that have the full force of federal law. Hmm. So there's no way now to stop them, even if Congress woke up tomorrow and was suddenly interested in doing its damn job. So then you've got to ask, how do we push back against these federal agencies? And, and where I land is, it's got to be networks of communities and think tanks and litigation groups at the state level who through unified action begin to push back um, these agencies. And I tell some stories of, of agency abuse in the book that'll make your blood boil, so. 
Are your thoughts running in endless circles in your mind? I know that I have been there. So with the stresses of this last year, it's more important than ever to practice living healthier and happier lives. So what if a few minutes was all it took to change your relationship with stress and anxiety, transforming your life for the better? That's the power of meditation with Headspace. Our thoughts can be confusing enough. Meditation doesn't have to be. Headspace is your convenient dose of meditation, mindfulness, and sleep exercises to relieve stress and anxiety and help you get a good night's sleep all in one app, making it easy to catch your breath and make time for your mental health. And it's one of the most science-backed meditation apps in the world, proving meditation works. A study proves in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. You're going to love their SOS mini meditations, for example, that just give you a quick breather. They relieve stresses and bring you a moment of peace amongst all of the daily chaos. Find some Headspace at headspace.com federalist and get one month free of their entire meditation library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com federalist today. Headspace.com federalist. In the 1960s, as war raged in Vietnam, Americans were shocked to learn of documents leaked from the Pentagon that made them question their government's entire involvement in the conflict. The new season of Wondery's podcast, American Scandal, explores the Pentagon Papers, those highly controversial leaked documents that led Americans to demand an end to the catastrophic war. In the 60s, Daniel Ellsberg was a young government official who discovered that U.S. leaders were secretly escalating a war they knew could not be won. Sound familiar? As a result, thousands of men were drafted each year only to be senselessly killed. Once Ellsberg recognized this terrible truth, he made the bold decision to leak the documents now known as the Pentagon Papers, even if the consequences would land him behind bars for life. It's a story about self-sacrifice and justice, but it's also the story of Ellsberg's transformation from government operative to anti-war whistleblower and how his actions altered the course of American history. Listen to American Scandal, The Pentagon Papers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. I don't doubt it. I'm really glad you brought up the Loudoun County example, though, because uh, I actually was going to ask you, with your the lens that informed this book, how did you interpret the results of the Virginia gubernatorial election? I, you know, I was really happy, Emily, because um, <laughs> first of all, what we saw around the country, uh, you know, our friends at Ballotpedia, which is a wealth of political information, they kept this tally, which is the number of um, school board recalls. And in an average year, it's maybe 20 something, but this year it was 85. Mm. And, and we saw, you know, Cincinnati, Wichita, all over Pennsylvania, parents running for school board and winning. And so, uh, you know, when you looked in Virginia, you saw counties that had gone for Biden um, jumping over to Glenn Youngkin. And the main reason was he talked like a normal person about normal things that normal people care about, like their grocery prices and their schools and their safety. And meanwhile, his opponent, Terry McAuliffe, he mostly wanted to talk about Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So my understanding of you know what went on in the in Virginia was the the primary was a little bit different than what they've had in the past. There was more ability uh, for the kind of party insiders to exert some control, and that's something else I get in, in the book is that we've seen as a result of 
of party reforms that began in the 60s and 70s, uh, the two major parties have really been captured by the most toxically ideological gang in America on the left and the right, and that is their activists and their donors. And so then the bind we're in is it's very hard for Glenn Youngkin to rise up through the ranks of one of those major parties and get the media coverage, because the media only covers people when they're highly negative. We know that from extensive analysis, and there's reams of data that show that. If you're negative temperamentally, you get a lot more coverage. So the media favors the extremists, and then the party insiders favor the extremists. And so it's hard for a regular person to get a hearing. But when they do, Americans love it. So that's the challenge is how do you get more normal people to come into politics, which is uh, part of why to get at in the book as well. Is self-governance ultimately populism? And is it populism in 2021? Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, because, we, you know, we end up trying to bumble around with what is populism Um and so, you know, if I revert to a sense of populism that, that like my, you know, friend Bill Kaufman, this wonderful writer, um, which everyone should read, he's up in New York, he writes for a lot of different organizations. Um, he, he talks about populism and it strips it away from some of the specific policy prescriptions like nativism and, you know, restricted trade and all the rest. And it's really more a trust of the people and, a, and a, almost a reverence for the body politic and the people, um, which I think is, you know, constant with what the founders had in mind. So if that's how we're going to talk about populism, um, then I think, yeah, I mean, I, I was on some radio show last night and I told the host, I feel like I'm a radical centrist. Mm -hmm. I embrace the radical idea that in a democracy, the centrists ought to have a say. And, and so if that's what we mean by populism, then yeah, it is. It's trusting um, the people. But I think that's what the founders did. They, they, they put in roadblocks, right, to, to, so that the best parts of us would have the greatest likelihood of surfacing in terms of who runs the government and in terms of the decisions the government makes. But they didn't um, set up a system where who we, we the people, had no say. Um, and I think we've, we kind of forget that when we tell ourselves that the founders didn't like democracy and they didn't trust the people. They, they wanted the best of the people to come forward. If we are now in an environment where the administrative state has outsized power and and clearly um, more than the founders ever intended it to ever intended the administrative state to have, how then can we trust the system if the system is also sort of flawed and has a uh, I guess is has something blocking the sort of machinations. Yeah. No, Emily, I mean, I think, I mean, what immediately comes to my mind and what is most worrisome to me is how uh, folks in the political class on the left and the right have been waging this um, propaganda war against elections mm. uh, the past couple of cycles. It's just now the standard operating procedure. If you lose, cry fraud. And once you destroy um, average Americans trust in the electoral system, it's a guaranteed way to get them to just drop out. Your activists will still show up, right? But but not regular folks who are disgusted with all of it. And that to me is a, a terrible danger. Um, I don't want people to trust the federal government as it's construed right now. I certainly don't, um, mm -hmm. but I, I want them to trust their neighbor. And so that's kind of where I talk about it towards the end of the book is I didn't want to give people a magic wand and say, well, to fix America, Congress should reform itself, you know, or... Uh, people should suddenly be angels. Uh, so I tried to think about 
what any reader could do right away. And I thought, well, let's start with the thing you have the most control over, which is yourself. And, and what can you do in terms of your relationship with your neighbor? And then from there, what can you do in your community and your neighborhood and then in your town and then go outward from there? Um, but it's less a, a matter of trusting the existing institutions than um, retaking them, starting mm -hmm. locally and retaking them, which, which would take time. But, but any kind of sickness, um, usually there's not one pill you can take and you're fine. It takes some recuperation. Something that worries me in this context is that technology and globalization, which are obviously hand in glove um, and, you know, functions of the same sort of thing, ha have driven our focus more nationally and globally and less locally. Um, and that has driven policy and that has driven culture. Um, how much effect do you think that's had on the power being transferred or amounts of power being transferred gradually over time from individuals and communities to states and federal governments? I mean, you got your finger on it because we've seen um, a, a steady decline in local news and even mm -hmm. the coverage of local, state and local issues on the local channels and papers that remain. And for a variety of reasons we don't have to get into, it's interesting. Um, but I think there's clearly an effect then on the outlook people have. I mean, I was talking to somebody very politically connected, my, my home state of North Carolina, and he was bemoaning the fact that you know, there's a lot that, that has changed for the better in terms of policy in North Carolina. But the people he regards as his people, the conservatives of the state, they're getting all their news from Fox. It's all national stuff and that's all doom and gloom. So, so they're just negative and they're checked out. And he's like, we need them to dial in right now because the left is kind of mounting uh, this resurgence to undo the stuff we've done in terms of taxes and regulation. And so it's like uh, people are not connected to their own communities anymore in terms of the news they consume. And that then does affect their outlook. And we know for a fact the people who consume uh, the most of this kind of um, left and right national media are the ones that are most blinkered in terms of their understanding of what's actually going on in their communities. I'm really glad you brought up the example of local news because that sort of gets to what I was going to ask next, which is this is to what extent is this a concerted top down effort um, or is it also just a function of people on the top having more and more power and wielding it um, as opposed to a sort of like conspiracy to wrest power away from people in communities? Because we see this pretty across the board. I mean, part of what you argue in the book is that these culture war fights and the, the fights of identity politics um, keep people at each other's throats. They make neighbors uh, distrust and dislike their neighbors. And in the cancel culture climate, you can see it's easy, I mean, to distrust your neighbor because neighbors are putting each other's houses on Twitter and, um, you know, trying to make issues out of it. Um, but that doesn't, I, I don't know, I'm curious for your perspective as to whether that's something people are doing deliberately or if it's just happening. I mean, it's the same thing with local newspapers. They've all dried up and it's it's not so much a, an issue of demand um, as it, the business model didn't work and they got nationalized. Oh, yeah, that's, um, uh, you know, in my first chapter of the book, it's called The Great American Con. And, um, I, you know, I, people can read it. Hopefully they'll like it. But I what I try to stress is that I'm describing a conspiracy, but it's an unconscious one. Uh, and it's it's a 
a result of behaviors in the political class that are driven by the changing incentives. And, you know, I get into a little bit what those incentives are. So I would say for the most part, no, there's not some concerted effort, but the unconscious conspiracy in a twisted way unites the hard left with the hard right, because they both, as you mentioned, have a disdain for the views of average Americans. And they use their death battle with each other um, to justify their undemocratic action. You know, the party that's out of power in D.C. wails and complains about how autocratic Congress is and how the, the, the bad president is using all his executive orders unfairly. And they, they say they're going to reform things. And then the moment they retake power, <clears throat> they do exactly the same thing. And they, <clears throat> they justify their actions by what the other side is doing. And then there's a great political scientist, Frances Lee, who's, who's really blown this open. It's just brilliant what she's, she's shown. But she shows with a lot of data that once we entered this period after the Reagan years of relative parity uh, in, in elections between Democrats and Republicans, that's when you began to see this toxicity emerge because neither side can afford to give the other side even a half inch. They'd rather have no policy and, and, and not have anything that helps Americans than do something jointly that would allow the other side to take any credit at all. And so you end up with this conspiracy to destroy you know, the, the foundations of America, but it's not like they hatched that out. It's just the consequence of the incentives they're operating under. What are the areas of everyday life that um, Americans and communities around the country should be thinking of in terms of making policy change at their level, at the local level, at the state level? Is it policing, education? Are there any areas where, as you say, the the sort of vulnerability is, um, you know, the administrative state, the administrative state's vulnerability is actually changing these policies on that local state level. So what are the, the issue areas you think demand um, the most immediate sorts of efforts? Yeah. Uh, so I would, I, I would separate. There's, there's some kind of institutional opportunities in terms of, for example, litigation against agencies in terms of the across issue areas, whether it's lands, energy, whatever, water policy. Um, but in terms of issue areas, you know, the number one we saw in this last election is education. Parents are paying attention now. They've seen their, you know, three-year-olds being masked in preschool. The kids have been out of school. Uh, you know, the, the government is captive to the teachers union. They're fed up. And so now they're going to try to retake their school boards, which I think is awesome. So they're going to start to run into some of the institutional barriers um, to that. Like this, like I mentioned, size of school districts, the, the top-down control, both from the, the feds in terms of testing, but even states too, like, you know, a principal in the state of Kansas needs permission from the State Board of Education to lease a new boiler for his school. Uh, it's just that kind of bureaucracy people hate. We've always hated, um, which is one of the things that makes us so American, and I love it. Um, but there's also, like you mentioned, opportunities in crime. I mean, we've mm -hmm. seen this effort to sort of federalize um, policing. Uh, and in part, once again, um, we see this shirking on the part of our representatives. Um, I wrote about this last year that we all look to the Department of Justice to deal with um, police abuse and what they call pattern and practice kinds of abuse. And the reality is that state AGs could step up. They have they have more power than the DOJ does. They can subpoena, they can do other things, but they don't because they're all running for governor and they don't want to upset anybody. Well, shame on them. Um, mm. We could change that with the right kind of pressure. We, we can actually influence 
AG races in our states um, if we'll start publicizing that stuff and paying attention. So I think those are a, a couple of issues because they're so close to home and because we know for decades, two of the most important issues to Americans are, are public safety and education. And if you add a third in there, it's going to be healthcare. Um, right. And that's kind of a disaster. And there's opportunity there um, in terms of enforcing existing transparency laws with pricing and other kinds of things you can do. So those all have local components. Um, and the more people get engaged on those things, the more their state legislators have to start paying attention. And I think they can. Um, we just got to refocus. There's been a lot of action on the state level towards big tech, um, but that's also one of the biggest culture war fights that we have nationally, censorship on big tech, big tech in general. Um, I think there's a good case to be made that a company like Facebook enjoys, if not the legal monopoly status, we don't really have a good framework to deal with tech companies legally, but does enjoy a sort of monopoly on what it is that Facebook does. Um, and I wonder if you think there is a, a, an i-citizen method of sort of reclaiming power from uh, tech oligarchs as they really, I mean, if, if you can't talk, if you can't call a man a man on Twitter, um, is the is, is the solution to stop using Twitter, um, even if your work demands it, or in the case of Gmail, you know, you have to use it for your work, whatever it is. What's the response in, in those sort of thorny conversations? Oh, gosh, I'll, I'll plead largely ignorance. I mean, I, I'm such a, I'm so wishy-washy on this. If, if I'm hanging out with like a Tyler Cowan, completely yeah. that Facebook is not a problem. So I'm with you. But then, you know, if I'm hanging out with some of my progressive friends, they're like, you know what, just burn it all down. Yeah. All burn it down to the ground and all bandwidth, you know, broadband should be community owned. So I'm, you know, I, I would love to see states get more engaged in these kinds of questions. Um, yeah. I'm just not familiar with uh, sort of the set of incentives that these big tech companies operate under from the state level, but I'd be curious yeah. what that could look like. Mm -hmm. um, and related to that, we've seen the Build Back Better plan. There's this uh, debate about putting a lot of money into local news and what does that look like? And my conservative friends instinctively oppose it. Uh, I'm sure it will be misused, but I, I think it's worth considering some of those kinds of um, you know, questions. What could we do to reinvigorate local news? Because then Facebook becomes less threatening if people have other means by which they're consuming news that matters to them in their communities. This might feel like a curveball, but um, Mary Eberset, I think, has written very persuasively. Um, her book, Primal Screams, is called How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. And the sexual revolution in and of itself, I think, is sort of downstream of the technological revolution, the industrial revolution. But um, how does that fit into when we look at alienation, sort of what Tim Carney has documented um, around the country and alienation in these rural communities, working class communities? And how does how do you sort of bring self-governance back um, when not only you have elites sort of mobilized to take it away, but you also have a lot of communities that have, have been sort of neutered um, for cultural reasons? Yeah, I, I, you know, I have a chapter where I talk about it's called uh, reclaiming American identity. And, um, and this may, you know, just stop me if this is not getting at your question. But this is what comes to mind is, there's an effort by sort of our institutional leaders, especially in the parties and the political class, to really narrow and cheapen our identity as Americans 
to party members and voters. So if you're a citizen, that means you show up every four years, you're really diligent every two years and you vote on who's going to run your life. And then you go home and, and do your job and pay your taxes. Uh, and what I try to stress in that chapter is there's a whole richer set of identities that if we begin to re-embrace them, you know, mother, father, employee, neighbor, mm. church, member, um, that that is sort of the, the antidote or the inoculation against this toxic partisanship. Um, but then part of what you're talking about too, Emily, is when you said alienation, of course, I go to Marx and I, <laughs> I you know, this would be more on the popular side of things. And this appeals more to my progressive friends, but as, as a localist, I think we have to think about how um, I'm a localist, but I'm a longtime member of the right. And I think we have to start asking, you know, what is our embrace of a kind of um, Randian free market economics meant to communities and reconcile that with um, what it means, you know, like what's our purpose as individuals? And, and I think there's a role communities can play in that. They can, you know, if they want to decide, you know, we want to promote more local entrepreneurship here and less big box retailers. I say, give them that authority to do that. Let them begin to sort that stuff out because mm -hmm. it's the wrestling together that is the thing. You know, I don't really care so much if they landed a bad policy as, as much as I care that neighbors begin to talk to neighbors to try to govern themselves together because that's when you start to re-knit you know, a community. And that's the ultimate defense against the political class. I love the uh, increasing overlap between the populist left and populist right when it comes to, I mean, the, the right would sneer and laugh at uh, the left when they would try to oppose a Walmart going into a, you know, a smaller community. And now the right might pause and say, actually, that grocery store across the street has been family owned for 30 years and employs a, a whole lot of people. I don't know if Walmart's going to uh, be the same, have the same effect in our community. Uh, so I, I'm hopeful that I'm, I'm optimistic that there's maybe some common ground there. And uh, the, the last question I'll add is how important the last question I'll ask is how important is to the point you make in that last chapter, that sense of identity as a country um, when patriotism uh, feels diminished? How important is that to to reclaiming self-governance? Um, what I, I talk about in one of the latter chapters is that, uh, you know, there's I think we get back to a richer kind of U.S. citizenship when we when we reinvigorate our sense of citizens of our neighborhoods and our, our towns and our states. And, and I don't mean to kind of, you know, go back to the Articles of Confederation, but um, when you when you reengage in your community, you know, there are ties to it that, that you love when you love your community, you love your country. I've never really, I've always been suspicious of people who talk about how much they love their country and they don't even know the neighbors. I think that, and, and Tocqueville talked about this, like the, that sort of cheap, shallow patriotism of the French, which could be used to stir them up to go be slaughtered in some war for their king versus a, a richer kind of almost skeptical patriotism of the American colonists who were bound together in their labors. And, and that gave them a greater love for their country as a consequence. So I think that that's the pathway back is, is love your neighbor first and then your love for your country will grow. I love that. The book is I Citizen. Tony Woodleaf, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Bye.